Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 15, Acts 15. We find ourselves in this book, in this chapter, it's in the middle of a church conflict. There was a, a group of Jews who were advocating for circumcision to be necessary for becoming a Christian. And church leaders had gathered together in Jerusalem to hear both sides of this issue. I mean, I love the fact that they were meeting together, having this open discussion about what to do about this matter to hear from both sides. Um, And uh, it's cool that they weren't ramrodding something through, you know, my way or the highway, none of that kind of stuff going on. It was, um, you know, let's... Uh, Let's really deal with this. And so Paul and and Barnabas got up and spoke, and then James provided a perspective that really won the day. And here's what he said. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. He had this pull, if you will, of those who said, we want to go down this legalistic road. And he's saying, no, we're going to go down this road. I mean, there are people who want the church to travel down a road that they think is holy. Mind you, I'm not saying their motives are bad, but it's legalistic. It's it's confining. It's, It's adding something to on top of the gospel. And just about every evangelical church has had to struggle with this in one form or another. What you had here were a group of leaders who, who stood against that. And they said that we want the, the church to be more consistent with this, with the gospel, more, more grace-filled, not legalistic. I mean, certainly the gospel has theological implications or components, does it not? Theological components. You cannot have a true gospel without understanding that all men and women come into the world as sinners, right? That's a, that's a theological statement that the Bible says that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You cannot have a, a true gospel without understanding the character of God, that he's a just God. You cannot have a true gospel without understanding that Christ came to this earth and lived a sinless life. He was fully human and also fully God. So that when he died on the cross, he represented us and he satisfied the demands of God. You cannot have a a true gospel without understanding the Death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is effective for the forgiveness of our sins. And you cannot have a true gospel without understanding Romans 10.9 that says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no addition here. Oh, and do a little bit of this Mosaic law. You, you got to add a little bit of this. The declaration of the trust that one has in the finished work of Christ. So these theological components, they're foundational. They're absolutely necessary 
kind of what has the, you know, the meat on the bones. But then there are implications. There are consequences to that. We might say it another way. There's a, there's a church culture that should be consistent with that. Good theology is the bedrock of any church. But that theology has daily implications for how we operate. And if we don't think through these things, then we can easily run off the rails. I mean, if our, if our church culture, you know, the way we operate is not consistent with our stated theology, we just create an echo chamber on Sunday mornings. Goes in one ear and out the other. Those are, those are empty words written on the wall over there. I mean, if I stand up here and I say, we're a church that believes the gospel, we're a church that believes in grace, and then I'm a tyrant with our staff, I bull rush the people that I work with, it's all, you know, just my way, and I don't listen to other people, and basically, I bully people, and there's, there's arrogance and competition and pride within the ministry leaders then there's a, there's a disconnect between our, our theology and how we operate. Just this week, another well-known pastor was fired because of an all-too-common occurrence that we're hearing these days. He was a bully. He was unable to hear from other people. He was unable to heed instruction. Well-known, many, many books. But finally they said, we can no longer, and I know, I know personally people who've worked with this guy and said, that was a tyrant. If the, if the hardware of the church is our theology and the software is our ministry practice, then the church has to constantly upgrade its software. <laughs> Check its software and make sure it's running well. And like the church in Acts 15, we, we do battle with forces that want to steer us in a territory foreign to the gospel and a healthy culture. If you have legalistic factions, and by the way, every church, again, has had to struggle with this. If you have legalistic factions, then that means there are unhealthy assumptions made about other people, particularly about those who don't, you know, subscribe to your subcultural code. It creates a spiritual arrogance, a, a mistrust in other people. Or you might have ministry leaders who get myopic and try to keep the church, at, you know, constantly going back to the past, you know, like it used to be. They rebuff change. They become very self-protective. Every church faces these kinds of struggles. So when James stands up and he says, we are not going to go down this path, took all the information and everybody, you know, had their say and they make the decision, we're not going to go down this legalistic path. We are a church focused on the gospel, and our culture has to reflect that. That's what he was saying. 
I mean, how many of us have experienced churches where the, they were theologically correct, but relationally sick? Okay? I'll never forget. I, this is a godly man I'm talking about. I, I, love, I loved this man, a pastor I knew, and I was young, just getting ready to start. I, you've heard me tell this story before. It just stands out to me. He gave me this story how he was hurt early in his ministry. And he said, if there's one thing I can tell you, Kevin, about getting in ministry, don't get close to people. Isn't that what ministry is, the relationships? He said, don't get close because you're going to get hurt. That's, that's not ministry. That, that's, that's something you're doing from a distance. Now, this was a good man. This was not a... He was not a bad man, and I, and I believe he had integrity, but he had been so hurt, he just kind of got in this little self-protective bubble. And I know that he was able to have relationships, but you can't have that as a, as a, as a ministry goal, for sure. So, you know, I could stand up here, and I could give you a mission statement, a vision statement, and then push people around and, and make decisions based solely on what brings in, you know, more money, more people. But then you'd have to ask yourself the question, now, wait a minute. Kevin says he values this, but this is what he does. So how is it you're going to know what I really value? It's not going to be by what I, what I say, but by what I do, right? I mean, we just had Valentine's Day. If I give my wife roses and we go out to dinner, hey, one time a year, honey, we'll go out to eat, all right? But the rest of the year, I, I cut her down. I don't show her love. What is she going to be most prone to believe? What I said on Valentine's Day or what I live throughout the rest of the year? See, what, what a church values is expressed in what they do not in what they say. And what we do, we call our culture. It, those, are the, those are the things that we know collectively we value together. The culture is so important. In fact, John Maxwell said this. He said, culture eats vision for lunch. Culture eats vision for lunch. You know, you could say, all right, there's our vision, but what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we valuing? Again, a legalistic theology will produce a community of fear. If, if, if the church in Acts wanted to have a culture of grace that was consistent with the gospel, they understood that there's got to be a straight line from the theological foundation to how they're behaving, to what they're doing. If we have a gospel-centered theology, we have to think of how that influences our values and culture. And we, we need to seek consistency throughout our organization. And how do we do that? Well, we hire and recruit people who hold the same values. But we have to have an understood set of values. Those values dictate our action. And by the way, they also reduce the need for having endless policies and manuals to dictate what everybody ought to do. Agreed upon values attract people who appreciate a clear direction. 
This is what happened in Acts 15. Now, we'll, we'll go through this verse by verse in some coming weeks, but right now, again, I'm just giving you a kind of a flyby, one idea that just stands out. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch and Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. So when they uh, sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. So they distilled all that they wanted in this letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. There was something that resonated in the hearts of the church because they shared these same values. There was something that they acknowledged that was biblical. When James and the rest of the apostles talked, they're like, yeah, that's right. That's the way to go. Grace, gospel. Now, do you really think that they would have been encouraged if they went the way of legalism? Hey, we have to all get circumcised. Woo! Mm. Thank God for that. Think the Gentiles would have been excited about that? I don't think so. That's why when Gary stands up here and he talks, we don't get, you know, it's not so we can just give a report. And we, you don't give to, you know, hear a report. You give because you're excited about what God is doing and, and there's shared values among us as a, as a church, as a, as a congregation. Something resonates in our hearts. Something inspires us toward equipping and empowering people in our God-given gifts to advance the kingdom of God. It's something bigger than ourselves. I mean, people might give temporarily to a project, you know, a building or something like that, but they sacrifice and serve a lifetime for something that inspires them, something that they greatly value. You know, James stands up and he gives that declaration that this is where we're going. And in the same way, when a, when a church has an, an understood set of values or direction and, and, and a vision, it clears a path for people to understand this is who we are. I mean, maybe we've, we've gotten a little bit away from this. So let, what were those values again? Who are we as a person? I mean, I can remember early on in ministry. You know, I'd read these books from other pastors or I'd attend other churches or go to a conference and, you know, Pastor A, Pastor B, Pastor C, they all have good things. You're trying to pick and choose. Well, I wish I had that and I wish I had that and I wish I had that. And pretty soon, it's like you read all these people and they say what you ought to do. It's like you're just trying to spin plates, you know, and keep it going and, you know, have all these things that a church ought to be. And then pretty soon you realize, I just cannot keep up this carnival act, all right? There comes a point where you just have to be comfortable in your own skin, comfortable with doing what God has given you to do as a vision, and just go for it. And let the rest of it just fall out the way God chooses to do it. And not have to worry about whether I fit into, you know, this system here or not. I remember (laughs) when I was working on my master's degree, it was an eight-hour drive to Chicago. I'd go twice a year. And one set of tapes, if I told you the guy's name, you'd know it was who it was. But he said, now, if you're going to be a pastor, you got to be this and this. And I realized, well, I'm neither of those things. 
That's not who I am. And I remember getting to Chicago thinking, man, am I really fit for this? You know, when you have somebody telling you, you got to have this kind of personality, or, you know, you, you got to have this or that, you got to be in this system. Like, no, wait a minute. God's the one working through you. I don't have to fit within some man-made thing to prove that I'm a guy who belongs, right? I think it's important for us as a church to say, this is who we are. This is the direction we're headed. And it brings clarity to us. If, if we had to say, all right, this is who Christ Community Church is. This is who we are. That helps us then stand against, like in Acts 15, against many factions that have come in the past and will continue to come at us to say, no, you need to be about this. You need to do this. Now, wait a minute. This is who we are. This is our vision. These are our values. So let me just throw a few of these out here. If I had to, if I had to describe to somebody who CCC is and what we're trying to do, here, here are some values, again, that would dictate direction, help us all to understand where we're headed. First of all, do the hard thing. These are going to be very simple. Do the hard thing. Uh, simple to understand, not necessarily easy to do. But we choose biblical ob- obedience even when it means taking the harder or longer path. We're to take the word of God seriously, even if it means running against the culture. And by the way, positions clearly enunciated in the Bible are continuing to rub up more and more against the culture. No longer popular. But we believe that the word of God is authoritative in our lives. That it was was given by God to human beings to know the will of God. But listen, there are personal forces that work against this. That's why Paul said, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul said, I don't want to do something stupid. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be willing to do the hard work to stay within the rails. And then there are also outside forces working against obedience. Daniel stood up against a king. We asked him to bow down to an idol. And he said, no. There are always forces that kind of connive against God's people. Paul also said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And again, Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So what are we doing trying to be attractive to the world? Now, we love I'm not saying we have a license to be jerky to people or rude. We love well, but we can't choose what is just convenient. We often have to do the hard thing. I realized when Janet and I were listening to a couple of these speakers in Chicago, the the whole um, theme was the authority of the word of God. 
And I mean, for both messages, and it's like, it's not like these were like great orders, but the topic, it was so, I felt like an empty vessel and somebody was just pouring into me. All the stuff about the word of God, you know, is, is powerful. The word of God is authoritative. The word of God in its original manuscripts are inerrant, and we need to preach the word and stay on the word. And I realized after coming out of both of those messages, and one, by the way, was like an hour and 10 minutes. That's a long sermon. See, you're lucky here, all right? You think 35 minutes, when's the guy going to stop? Imagine twice that, all right? When you are teaching the word, and in some cases I'm in, I feel like I'm kind of in enemy territory, uh, not here, but, but elsewhere, you, you expend energy, and to have somebody come in and just kind of affirm the word of God, it's like, oh, thank you. I needed that. That was good. Somebody, somebody on our side, you know, <laughs> somebody who agrees that this is powerful and needed, and it was just so, so enriching. Do the hard thing. Next, loosen your grip. Loosen your grip. Uh, we live an abundant life when we open our hands, our calendars, and our budgets, expecting God to use them for his kingdom. We demonstrate a lack of trust in God when we use our possessions merely for our own consumption, and we never get past that. Just for our own consumption. The person who lives an abundant life leverages his calendar, leverages his service, leverages his or her possessions for the kingdom of God. Why? Well, 1 Chronicles 29, 14 gives us a good clue. For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. In other words, we are trustees, stewards of God's possessions. Every second, every cent, every opportunity God puts in our path, he gives to us, and we're to steward that for the kingdom of God. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture, the psalmist wrote. So we are the people of God and as such, we are subject to him. He therefore has authority over us in our use of material possessions, our calendars, and our service. So we seek to be what? Jesus said in Luke 12, to be rich toward God as we leverage all these things for the kingdom. Loosen your grip. Next, overcome distractions. We unite as a diverse community to overcome differences through a gospel focus and purpose. Acts 15 is a, is a great illustration of not allowing differences to distract us from a gospel focus. People get hung up on all kinds of things, don't they? You know, everybody's got to go through this particular program or secondary doctrinal issues or lifestyle choices or, or politics. And we think that these things are necessary for unity. And then you read something like Galatians 2 that just blows that all out of the water. Because you realize what, what it was that these people came together on. It was the gospel. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, there was a lot of other important things besides the gospel, but when it comes to determining who I could really fellowship with and have this deep, intimate fellowship, the gospel is what determined that, that we could be one. Not, 
being of the same race, not having the same economic level, but it was the gospel. That's what reigns supreme. So we have to overcome distractions, right? Now, every month, I meet together with a, an AG pastor, a black pastor, an evangelical covenant pastor, an Anglican pastor, and a full gospel pastor, and a Southern Baptist, just to throw it in for good measure. And we fellowship together. Why? Because there's agreement on the gospel. Now, if we wanted to, we could talk about all the things we disagree on. But why do that? I'm not there trying to convince them of my view on things that in the end don't really matter all that much. But we agree on the gospel, and we can enjoy great fellowship. And it's been one of the most enriching experiences of my life to be able to have this fellowship with these men because we understand that it's the gospel that unites us. Overcome distractions. Next, know your neighbor. We build intentional relationships meeting physical and spiritual needs both next door and around the globe. Listen, whether it's the, the Guatemala care point, whether it's someone you work with, whether it's uh, somebody, someone next door, whether it's the North Springfield community or somebody who walks through these doors at CCC, God puts people in our path to love. And love is not some mere sentimentalism. Love is not just saying the words, I love you. Love is doing some action. It is rolling up your sleeves. It is being the hands and feet of Jesus to our neighbor. We read in Romans, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. James 1 says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So it has a, it has a, a, a personal transformation, but then it's also outward. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is not a social gospel. This is just a gospel that works. When the gospel transforms us, we will love other people, period. We will care about the plight of other people. We will try to improve their lot wherever they're at. We care about them. Why? Because every single person, no matter if they're, if they're Muslim, if they're homosexual, if they're a Democrat, or if they're a Cubs fan, they're made in the image of God. It doesn't matter. And we have to be willing to meet people on that level and minister to them and love them on that level. This past week, I got a message from somebody who doesn't live in Springfield, but I occasionally have contact with. He was asking about the church, and I said, well, I, uh, you know, I shared about our unity with some of, the, some of the other black churches in town. I shared about Guatemala, our partnership with the north side of Springfield with, with Jobs for Life and uh, you know, some other things. And his exact words to me was, I have never heard of a church doing all those things. And I'm thinking, well, you probably don't get out much. That's why you've never heard of other churches. Because any good idea I get, I've stolen from other churches, right? <laughs> but it, 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 it struck me that that should be the norm. And yet, to him, it was like, that was such an anomaly. And then he follows it up and he says, hey, do you think my wife and I could could start giving to your church? You know, he doesn't live in this town. I said, no, we don't accept money from out of town. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that. 
I'm glad you can recognize sarcasm from up here. All right. It should be the norm, shouldn't it? You know, many of us, I think, grew up in churches in which, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to dog other churches, but I'm just trying to get hone in on this thing of know thy neighbor. It's like the, the whole thing was about every Sunday, a gospel message, a gospel message. You get people saved, and then you just leave them. There's no deep relationships within the body. There's, there's no discipleship. There's, there's no real fellowship. It's like a one-trick pony. No equipping, no ministering to others on a deep level. But to, when we say know your neighbor, we want to have a passion to treat our neighbors as somebody made in the image of God. Everyone. And in doing so, we give others dignity and we can share with them how God has changed your own life through the gospel. And this has deep implications for the, for the relationships within the church, does it not? We want to build deep, meaningful relationships, accountable relationships. Many folks, include, and I say especially men within the church, are satisfied with just having a bunch of friendly people around them. You know, love getting with the guys, having a couple beers, yucking it up. These are my best friends. But never once have you talked about, you know, how's your marriage? Never once have you had maybe one of those guys to, to pray with you. Never once have you had somebody just say, hey, how's your relationship with God doing? You've never, you've never gotten past just the, the cursory discussions. There's nothing wrong with that. You need that, but you also need those things that are challenging, encouraging, and deep and abiding relationships. We have to be intentional to cultivate Meaningful relationships that are spiritually deep and emotionally satisfying. That's why we have life groups. That's why we have men's ministry and women's ministry to create on-ramps for us to at least taste those relationships. I've never felt like it was our calling as a church. And again, I'm not dogging others. I'm just saying for us here. It's not our, not our calling to put on a show on Sunday morning, you know, to, to pull out a, a bigger rabbit from a bigger hat every Sunday morning to impress people. It's not what we're here to do. Rather, we are to transform, and God does the transforming, but to, to seek to change lives one person at a time, to love well through intentional relationships, Right? That's why I have like 20 lunches a month, 20 individual times where I get together with people because it's through relationships that people are going to be impacted. Many of you are out in the audience, you don't even know my middle name, and I don't know the names of half of you. I want to, and I can't possibly know everybody. The sociologists say after 80 people, you're going to, you just wig out. Well, our church is many times past that. So how are you going to get that if it's not with me? Now, I have a responsibility to teach you, but I can't possibly have each of you as a best friend, so you have to find that elsewhere. That's why life groups are so critical. That's why men's ministry, women's ministry is so critical, so that we can have those relationships, right? So you have to be intentional. You have to be able to... Get on that ramp and say, okay, here I've got three or four people that, you know, we could meet with and 
I could be friends with and I could connect with and we can encourage one another. Know your neighbor. Lastly, get out of the boat. Get out of the boat. We pray often and take bold steps of faith, trusting that God will do what only he can. Proverbs tells us that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. God loves it when his people pray. God loves it when his people look to him. Just like when Peter looked to Jesus on the sea and he saw Jesus walking on the water, he gets out of the boat and Peter starts walking on the water. Amazing. And then, of course, he started sinking too because his faith waned. It's not that God is impressed with theological vocabulary, but he loves it when his people express faith. People depend upon him. We have to see God as much bigger than any of our problems, any of our issues, any of our needs. I love what A.W. Tozer wrote. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God, that's the most important thing about us. It's not about doing great things for God. It's about God doing great things in us. You know, our our hearts rise as we dedicate ourselves to to focus on prayer. We ask God for big things, and we want to be about doing that even more here at Christ Community Church. Prayer is not a tool to sanctify existing behavior. Prayer is a means for our heart and our lives to come under the authority and the will of God and to request the same in others. It's not a tool just to get what we want from God. It's a way for God's will to be accomplished through us, right? And nothing increases our faith like prayer. In fact, you know, the Bible talks about the gift of faith. I think it's just people who prayed a lot. They're they're synonymous, prayer and faith. Show me a person who has great faith, and I'll show you a person who prays all the time. Are you asking God to do something way beyond your capacity? Do you dare ask God for those huge things? I have a list of things I pray for in my life and in our church that are far bigger than what I could do alone. In fact, if you get on our church, CCB, it's our online connection point. If you get on there, you'll see under the church, there's a a tab for files, and there's a, under files, there's prayer requests for the church. It's a prayer list of things that we want to pray for constantly for our church. Be a good idea to, to find that and pray about those things. How about in your own life and in the church, what are things that would just like, boy, if God could do this, it would just be amazing. In fact, let's do this right now. Get your bulletin or a piece of paper, anything and write down one or two prayer requests that are just way beyond what you could do alone. And this is, why do we ask God to do this? Because he loves this. Because he loves letting us know that he's here, that he can work, and it's an opportunity for him to get glory. Because I didn't do it, God did it. Way to go, God. Write them down. And then begin to pray about these things consistently. I've got them on my list. Wouldn't it be cool to see what God does? 
Dare we ask God to do these big things? Yeah, he loves that. We're always going to have pressures telling us, this is what we want the church to be. I can't even, even communicate to you the number of conversations I've had of people trying to sway us. This is what you got to do. This is who you got to be. You'll be successful if you do this. But what we have to know and understand is that God has given us some, a vision consistent with who we are as a church, born from the scriptures, loosen our grip, overcome distractions, know our neighbor, get out of the boat. Let's pray.